For our scripture reading, we turn to two passages of scripture. We turn first to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17, where we read of the, in the second, Paul's second missionary journey as he came to Thessalonica, he and Silas. We read of the history there. One thing we take note of there is what Paul preached when he was there and also the persecution that was experienced there. And then we'll move to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and the passage we consider tonight is from the end of that chapter. First we read from Acts chapter 17, the first 10 verses. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few. But the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people, for they thought that they would be at the house of Jason. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason hath received. And these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. When they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now we turn to 1 Thessalonians, the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul and Silvanus, and that is Silas, and Timotheus, and that is Timothy, unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father, and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, and labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake, and ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. But that ye were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place, your faith to God were to spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us 
what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. So far we read from the holy and inspired word tonight, and the passage that we consider consists of the last part of verse 9 and verse 10. How ye turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Dearly beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, when we look to God to guide us in the work of missions, we undoubtedly look to Scripture. We pray, the labor, we continue to go to God in prayer, and we look to His Word. And looking to His Word means, for example, that certainly we study the book of Acts. Obviously, there is much instruction about the work of missions in the book of Acts, and as we go through the history recorded there. In that connection, also, it is good to look at the different epistles. For example, the epistles of Paul, where Paul makes a reference in his epistles to what took place during his mission visits. We also learn about what problems he encountered and how he addressed the problems that he did in the work of missions. There is much instruction looking at the book of Acts in connection also with the New Testament epistles on the subject of missions. Of course, it is by no means limited to that. As we look in the gospel narratives, in the book of Revelation, indeed in all the scriptures, not only the New Testament, but undoubtedly also the Old Testament, we look to God's word to guide us in the work of missions. This letter is a letter written to a group of uh, saints were that he had visited during his second missionary journey. Now they have, they have become a church. It's written to the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, and so now he's writing to the church. And he thanks God for them. Very often, in the epistles, in Paul's epistles, one pattern that you can see, and this is a, another important point, is that as you study the epistles, you can see certain patterns in the epistles of Paul. And one, one practice that he often followed is he would begin by talking about giving thanks to God for the saints. And then he would make a reference to a number of subjects that he will talk about in more detail in the letters. So in the very relatively short section where he's giving thanks to God, the things he mentions there, it's good to compare them to, to, with other statements that are made, in this case in 1 Thessalonians, and then also in, in 2 Thessalonians, the subjects that he brings up. But here tonight, we take a look at specifically how he makes reference to God's work in the Thessalonians who turned from idolatry. They turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. He's encouraging them as he makes this statement to them and as he says, I thank God for you. He speaks of their, their faith, their work of faith, their labor of love, their patience of, of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, and so on. Speaks of how they became followers 
of us and of the Lord. He makes statements like that. In this section, we take note of the fact that he is giving thanks to God. He's encouraging them. He's also thanking God, bringing out it is God's word. God is the one who worked in them. The preaching of the gospel came to them. And they turned. Many who hear the word of God externally preached do not turn. We saw that when we looked at Acts 17. Then there were those that did. He thanks God for the work of, this, of the Spirit of Christ within them. That they turned from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven. Now that applies to us too in our rearing of our children and giving instruction to our children. There are those who as they sit under the preaching of the word, some from their youth, they sit under the preaching of the word. And they're instructed in the church of Jesus Christ, they're instructed in the home, they go to our schools, they're instructed in our schools. And we see the work of the spirit within them. And they see, we see that they make a confession like we heard tonight. That they're resolved by the grace of God to adhere to the truth of the word of God. And to lead a new godly life. And when we hear that, and when we see young adults growing and becoming uh, Mature adults, and whether they stay single or whether they marry, they, they marry in the Lord, and, and seeing them mature in the work that they do, we give thanks to God. That's amazing. We're sinners with depraved natures. All of us by nature are idolaters. And that anyone turns from sin to God, to the true God, and really is waiting for God's son to come back. And is busy serving him. That's the work of the grace of God. And so we look at it from that point of view of giving thanks to God for that. We also, as we go through this, look at it from the viewpoint of the different aspects, like the turning. There's to be an ongoing turning. For all of us. It's a great joy when we see that our children are fighting their sin. What a great joy it is. And for you young people, you children and young people, for you to know that as your parents see that, you're that you have a sorrow for your own sin and that you are wanting to do what God says. And that at times you talk to other people. Well, we, we cannot do that. That's, God says we cannot or something else that we're supposed to do. Well, God says we are supposed to. And so that you're concerned about what God says. What joy can bring parents to tears to hear their children when they make statements like that and they see the work of God in their children. Not only hearing their confession of what they've been taught, but then seeing in their life they're striving to do that they're resolved to do what's pleasing to God. And when they sin, they go to God and confess with sorrow and ask for forgiveness and deliverance. We give thanks to God for that. And each one of us, in all of our life, is to be turning. It's not only that we exhort our young people to be turning away from sin, but our whole life is one of constantly turning away from sin to God. And we look at it from the viewpoint that we who have turned from our sin to God are waiting for Jesus. Waiting for Christ to come back. We're looking forward to it. We're patiently waiting, and that patiently waiting brings out that this was a word that was brought to God's people when they were persecuted, when it was difficult. They received the word of God in much affliction. They were patiently waiting for Christ. And us too, and these have been difficult days. 
and it's going to be. We know that we're living in the times right before our Lord comes. We do not know how long that will be. But we see what's promoted in our day. What's spoken and how people speak against anybody that speaks against homosexual practices and men that want to be women and women and all the things that are promoted, the, the, the abounding wickedness that Christ has told us it would be like. We turn, we're constantly to turn away from sin ourselves and to be waiting for Christ. We see the signs of his coming. And then lastly, that we're serving, that we're waiting. We are also serving. That when we make a confession of our faith that we belong to Jesus, that means we, he's our Lord, we belong to him, and we desire in our life to show our thankfulness to God, serving him. We consider that in the third place. So we look at this passage under the theme, waiting for God's Son from heaven, the genuine turning, the patient waiting, and the joyful, the joyful service. First of all, looking at it from the viewpoint that these who turned, what did they hear? What, what was preached to them? What was it that was taught to them? I'm being relatively brief about that, but making a few points. Certainly, they heard about God. We often say that preaching is to be theocentric, that we're to hear about God and about his works. They turned to, they turned from sin to the true and living God. That means there was instruction to them about the true God, about the living God. And about God who has life in himself. He has fellowship within himself. And he is the source of our life. And to have everlasting life is to know him. To have fellowship with him. To know him and his son Jesus Christ, the living God. Scripture speaks of him, speaks of his heart, speaks of his will. The true God, when it brings out the true God, it means over against a fictitious God. Now you know that many worship a God that is not real. That was the case in the past and that's still true today. They turned to the true God, to the living God. And they heard about Jesus. They heard about God. They heard about Jesus. They heard about the triune God. They heard about the Son of God, Jesus. We read in Acts 17, verse 3, how Paul was opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. We spoke about Christ, and he said, this Jesus, which means Savior or Jehovah's salvation, this Jesus, whom I'm preaching unto you, he is. He is the Christ. Why did he need to suffer? The fact that he rose again. The points that are summarized in our Apostles' Creed are points that have been used for centuries to explain the fundamental points of what the gospel is. In our witnessing, sometimes we wonder, where do you start? Where do you start with somebody that's hardly ever gone or maybe never gone to church at all? They get to an adulthood and they, realize, they say, you know, my parents never taught me. They didn't teach me anything from the Bible. And they have an interest that they'd like to know about what does the Bible say? What, is it, what does the gospel mean? You wonder, where do you start? For centuries, the church has used the Apostles' Creed or something, a creed similar, to be an accurate summary of the fundamental points. It talks about God, talks about the triune God and the Trinitarian framework. It goes through about God the Father in our creation, God the Son in our redemption, God, the Holy Spirit, on our sanctification. Those fundamental points where you go phrase by phrase and explain the meaning, that practice has been going on for centuries, long before the Heidelberg Catechism. And it 
was brought into the Heidelberg Catechism. That practice of using the, the Apostles' Creed to explain the fundamental doctrines. The Heidelberg Catechism followed that same method, and we follow that same method with our children. We do the same thing. We go through, and you children know, and you children have experienced, you young people have experienced that going through the Heidelberg Catechism, not only that you hear it preached, but also there's a catechism class where you go through it at a level that's a easier and slower, also with questions back and forth, and the pastor whoever, or the elder, whoever's leading, starts to learn to see that you're understanding the fundamental points that are being brought out there. And that that's brought out in that section concerning our deliverance. Those fundamental points are points that we see as we look into the preaching of the Apostle Paul, for example, that he brought up these fundamental points. I mean, they're waiting for Christ to come back. That, that means, obviously, they heard about Jesus' ascension and they heard about his return. Things mentioned in the Apostles' Creed. His death, resurrection, ascension, coming back. There was thorough doctrinal instruction that was given to them. A number of references to the end times, to the things to come. You see that in First and Second Thessalonians. There's instruction there. It's often been brought out that First and Second Thessalonians, which are thought to be one of the first, if not the first, First Thessalonians is thought to be at least very early, if it's not the first, letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. And we see how, at least that is the epistle that went into the scriptures, we see how he brings up the subject of the end times. They're waiting for Christ to come back. And there's lots of instruction on the, the coming of Christ, what's going to happen when he comes back, and the bodily resurrection. And then in the second epistle, he talks about the coming Antichrist. He gave a lot of detailed instruction in what we would refer to as eschatology, or the study of the last things. Bringing out the importance of that. And centrally, the truth concerning the forgiveness of sins. Repeatedly, you see that. In some places where what was taught is summarized very briefly, repeatedly you see that they talked about the coming judgment and they talked about forgiveness. The forgiveness of sins. Preaching to sinners. There is forgiveness. Turn to God. Turn away from sin to God. Confess your sins. The sorrow. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. To mock. And some by the grace of God turn. He talked about the God that accomplishes his purpose. He talked about election. Some people might say you don't mention election. You don't talk about election for a long time. He mentions election in the beginning of this epistle. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. And he doesn't explain it. He says he mentions knowing their election and he doesn't go on and explaining it which seems to indicate that he's already spoken to them about that. So he can mention the election of God and know that he has given instruction about that. That's, that's central in understanding the truth of salvation by grace alone. Unconditional election, which by the grace of God we and our children confess. That we aren't Saved because of anything that we did, and it isn't based on foreseen faith. The good pleasure of God, the sole cause of, our, of God's eternal election, is good, His good pleasure. It's only by the grace of God that I've been saved. Christ died for me, for you. And the Spirit of God. I was dead. And the Spirit of God quickened me. As we say in the canons, 
that God infuses new qualities into the will which, here, which though heretofore dead, he quickens. He quickened, he raised us from the dead. We believe, yes, faith is a gift. We repent and we must repent. Yes, we must repent, we must believe. We also confess that repentance and faith are, are gifts of God. So that somebody says like Paul did, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? If anybody can says that, really? Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Anybody really says that. It's only by the grace of God that anybody does. That's the work of the Spirit. Preaching the fundamental truth and exhorting the saints to turn. They turned. Now I'm looking at it from the viewpoint that you exhort people to turn. You speak against the idolatry. They turn to God from idols. Well, Paul, we'd read of Paul speaking against idolatry. Like in Acts 14, verse 15, speaking, we preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God. He would speak against idolatry. Turn from these vanities. Which the application to that is that we have to, we point out errors like we did this morning. We explain what the, the, the contrast between what is not true and what the truth really is and the comforting truth over against it. We speak about sinful practices and exhort people to turn. We read in the canon, second head, article 5, this promise, together with the command to repent and believe, ought to be declared and published to all nations and to all persons promiscuously and without distinction. And we look to God to guide us, and wherever he leads us, whatever groups we find, to talk with them about the word. But notice the promise and the command. Not the condition, not the offer and the condition, as a number of people will talk about how we say like we preach a conditional offer. We preach an offer and a condition. No, it's not a conditional offer. We preach the promise, the unconditional promise and the command. We do preach the command to repent and believe. And that article also brings out that where do we go? To, God, to whom God, out of his good pleasure, sends gospel. And we talk about the judgment of God on those who won't turn. We warn people. And there are some who genuinely turn from idolatry. Now we can, we know there were those that turned from, we can look at it idolatry from the external point of view, where they're, from the viewpoint rather, I should say, of those who are worshiping an idol that you, would, you could name this false god is what the god they were worshiping and now they turn from idolatry in that sense to the true and living God. But we know it's also the case that when we look at what idolatry is that all of us who are turned to God have turned from our sin by nature we are all idolaters. What is idolatry? Instead of or besides the one true God to contrive or have any other object in which we place our trust. Like riches. Trusting in riches, we read covetousness is idolatry. We recognize that we all by nature are covetous. Well, that's idolatry. And we know that we're to come to, we, as we considered just a moment ago with the Lord's Supper form, we're to return to God away from, from all sin. We are to lay aside unfeignedly, which means genuinely, all enmity, hatred, and envy. Turning away from all hatred. Firmly resolved to walk in true love and peace with our neighbor. 
We're to turn away from sin to God. Not imagining a God who doesn't punish the impenitent. Turning to the righteous and holy God who does forgive sins, who does forgive those who call out to him for forgiveness. And that's an ongoing turning. Throughout our whole life, we see, we still, we have proud thoughts, we see covetousness in ourselves, we, we see that we violate all these commandments. It's a constant struggle our whole life long, to constantly turn away from sin to God. And to wait. To wait for his son from heaven. Waiting for Jesus. Now, the waiting. Waiting for God's son or waiting for Jesus. On the one hand, the one we're waiting for is our savior. Jesus means he's our complete savior. He's God's son. He's our complete savior. We're waiting for him. Waiting has the idea that we're longing for him. We're expecting it, and we're familiar with the fact that the word hope in the scriptures, when it talks about us hoping for Christ to come back, that that has the idea of certainty. We know he's coming back, and we're, we're longing for him to come back. We're longing for God's son to come back, whom he raised from the dead. Now, this is an example of how he makes allusions to things that he's going to talk about more later. And he talks about Jesus coming, the one that was raised from the dead. Well, why does he mention that? How is Jesus' resurrection related to ours? Well, we explain that in the Heidelberg Catechism. That if our head has been raised, if we're waiting for our head, who has been raised from the dead, when he comes, he's going to raise us from the dead. There will be some that are alive when he comes, as was mentioned this morning, so on. But that that coming resurrection, the bodily resurrection, one of the points mentioned in the Apostles' Creed will happen when he comes back. We're looking forward to that. We're waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our bodies. That's what we say. That's what Scripture says in Romans 8.23. Waiting. For the adoption, to wit, that is the redemption of our bodies. We're longing to him to come from heaven. We know that that's what's going to happen. And if somebody says, how is that possible? You really believe that? If you were witnessing to somebody and you said that, you're, that just Jesus is going to come back, the clouds of glory, and you say, no, you really believe, now how is that really possible? Say, I know that's true. God says so. And they say, you really believe that? Yes, I have no doubt. If God says it, it's true. I believe he was raised from the dead. How was that possible? Raised from the dead and ascended into heaven? It happened. God has brought it about. He raised him from the dead. And he has been ascended and he has ascended into heaven and he will come back. We know that this is true. What man would say is impossible, God has accomplished. And God will. And God's son will come back, just as God has said. Wrath is coming. We're patiently waiting for Christ to come. We take notice that also this passage says that wrath is coming. Wrath. Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. So there's wrath coming. So you have Christ coming. You have wrath coming. Those ideas are connected. In Revelation 6, we find that verse we often quote about how in the end that they'll say to the mountains and rocks, fall on us. And you go on in that verse, it says, 
He said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Notice the connection. Christ is coming. Wrath is coming. Hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And then in 2 Thessalonians, the next letter, in the first chapter again, he speaks about that again. He talks about Christ coming back and he talks about deliverance for God's people and the judgment upon the impenitent. Seeing it's a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you and to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and so on. But he spoke about the coming of Christ, the judge, the coming of wrath. But God's people are waiting for him. The one we're waiting for is the one that delivered us. He delivered us from the wrath to come. He suffered the agonies of hell that we deserve. Who can say they think about that to the degree that they ought? That I think about the fact we bring out that I'm, we're supposed to when we examine ourselves, but it's not just then. That I deserve everlasting punishment, body and soul. That Christ was plunged into hellish agony. He suffered for me. He suffered for you. We're waiting for the one that delivered us from the wrath. Which delivered us from the wrath to come. And we patiently wait for it. We seek things above. going to be affliction, there's going to be trial in this congregation and our churches have gone through some difficult times and are going through some now as churches but also individuals as we have in our own congregation we have trials we go through in this life struggles, affliction we have comfort God says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. What a comfort that is to keep going over that verse. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. And Jesus Christ, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. Out of them all. Looking forward to his coming, we talk about his coming. Like we heard a confession of faith today, tonight. What a joy to hear that. And it brings us all to our mind the fact that we're to make our confession of faith before men. And we read that these Thessalonians, for from you sounded out the word of the Lord. It sounded out, it echoed. Not only in Macedonia, they were in Macedonia, not only in that region, but even into a cave and into another region. Also, in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad. They themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you and how ye turned and so on. They sounded out the word of the Lord. Those that are waiting, when you're waiting for something to come, like you children, if you're waiting for something, you're so excited that something's going to happen and you like to talk about it. And if you heard something's going to happen very soon and somebody may come over to the house and you want to tell them what's going to happen because you're so excited about what's going to take place. And we are to do, as we meditate on what is really going to happen and that we know it's true. We know it's true. And it shows forth in our speech what we're thinking about, what our mind is on. We long for, we look forward to waiting, patiently waiting. 
trials and afflictions, as the Thessalonians who were persecuted and we who are mocked, falsely accused at times, suffer for Christ's sake, and all of our afflictions that we go through, we do so as those who have hope. And then, lastly, we look at it from the viewpoint of, of serving. Are ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God? That those that have really turned are serving him. If they've really genuinely turned, then they're waiting. If they've really genuinely turned, they're serving the God who has saved them. There were those that weren't working. Now, serving God doesn't mean that we're inactive. And that's one of the points to bring out here. That we're serving God doesn't mean that we're like sitting somewhere and just waiting. You're not doing anything. You're just you're waiting. But while we're waiting, we are actively serving God. In all aspects of life, including in the workplace. When we go to the workplace, whether it's in the whether we're working in the home or whether we're working outside in the workplace, we're to labor as to the Lord. And we're looking for opportunities to bear witness to others that we labor as to the Lord and not unto men. There were those in Thessalonica, we don't have time to go into this, but one of the problems that they faced were that there were those that weren't working at all. They were disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. And he brings up, he mentioned it when he was there. He talked to them about it. He mentions it in 1 Thessalonians, and there's still some not working, and he mentions with stronger language in 2 Thessalonians that that was a, that was a problem for some. There were some. He brings out that there's some. It's not that they were all doing Doing that, he says here, he speaks to them about their work of faith and labor of love and so on, but that there were some. We're waiting, yes, but we are busily, actively serving God in every aspect of our life. Whatever we do, we do it as unto our Lord. Heartily to the Lord. Desiring to praise his name. In fact, the term service, the term that's translated serve there, to serve. And this is good for us to remember as we hear a confession of faith. One says, I, is effectively saying, I serve Jesus Christ. I belong to him. Well, the word serve has that idea. That we're owned by him say a slave, but it's, when we say the word slave, then we, often the word, the idea of forced service comes to mind, but if you look at it from the viewpoint of total belonging, that we totally belong to Christ, total devotion, total submission to his will, that's the idea of serving. That's really what it is in all of our life. When we say we serve him, that means total devotion. We love him. We're serving one that we love. We say our only comfort in life and death is that I'm not my own. We say that's my comfort in life. That's my comfort in death. And that answer, which many of us have memorized, Ends with, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life. He assures me of eternal life. And he makes me sincerely willing. So it uses the phrase makes me, but it also brings out the idea, I'm willing, not like, I'm not willing. He makes me sincerely willing and ready 
henceforth to live unto him. In a time where there's so much selfishness, so much selfishness for some to confess and to mean it, that they live unto Christ, whom they belong to, that they love him, and that they hate the selfishness they see in themselves, and that they keep looking to God to forgive them and grant grace that I might not be selfish, but really living unto my Lord, who redeemed me, to whom I belong, joyfully serving us. It's a delight, it's a joy. He's delivered us from being a slave to sin. He's delivered us from bondage. Serve the living God. We want to glorify Him. We want to glorify Him together. We want to gather together. And this is an important point to bring out constantly in the work of missions. As I was mentioning very briefly this morning, is the fact that we have to worship God together. Bearing witness to others, looking for opportunities to speak to others and encouraging them. The importance of us gathering together for worship. Increasing in our love for others. That's another point that's brought up. Increasing. Someone asked you, if they asked me, do you love God's people? Well, we'd say yes. I do. By the grace of God, I've only got a small beginning of the new obedience, but I, I really do. And God exhorts us to increase. We say, I want to increase. I want my life to be more holy. I want to increase in my love for, for God, for others. I do. We look to God for the grace. We hear that exhortation. And we look to God for the grace. To glorify Him. We're so thankful that we've been set free. And we want to show our thankfulness in all of our life. And we look to God for grace, forgiveness, strength to fight. We want to be a good example. We want to be a good example, too. Paul said, Ye became followers of us. He's saying this to encourage these Thessalonians. Ye became followers of us and of the Lord. And we say that to our young people. You became followers of us and of the Lord. Whom we're following. And you hear the instruction. And when you do the same, together we're following Christ. And you're an example. So that ye were examples. He says that to them. To these Thessalonians, ye are examples to all them that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. What that must have been like to hear that. He encourages them. He's bringing out it's the work of God in them. It's good for us to hear that word and for us to say we desire to be examples to others. In our homes, parents desire to be examples for their children. To set before them a, an example of a godly marriage. So that children, as they grow up, they see how much mom and dad love one another. How they're patient with one another. How they deal with the things when they don't go their way. And how we teach the children to be patient with one another. It's, it's ongoing. We desire to set forth an example. And then others see. Others can see our homes. Others will look at our families. Others have talked about that too. That have come from outside. And then they notice. They come to the church. And they notice. The, they, they hear the word preach. But then they also look at the people. See what's, what is hap what's happening to these people. The work of God in these people. In these young people. And these young adults, that's what we desire. We know we all fall far short of the mark of being the examples we ought to be. We look to God for the grace. and We pray with confidence that God will grant us grace that we grow. We grow. 
and that we show that when we're, that we serve the Lord gladly. It's a delight to serve him. We love him. We're serving the one whom we love. May we glorify him together. May we thank God for one another. I thank God for this congregation. It's a joy to worship with the saints here. I love you, and I'm thankful to God for you. And it's good for us to express our thankfulness and our love for God's people and to show that by the way we speak to one another and about one another and the way we work together. We're together serving our one Lord. We're waiting for our one Savior, Jesus. May we together glorify him. And thank him for his work. May we walk with him in these last days. We and our children together. And may the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The name of our God. Be magnified. Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord our God and our Father. We give thee thanks O Lord and praise. Thou art merciful and gracious. We're so thankful for the good news, the good news of the gospel of Christ. Lord, strengthen us. We confess our own sins, and we are thankful that thou dost continue to turn us away from our own sins unto thee. May we glorify thee in all of our life. May our children glorify thee. We're thankful for the confession of faith we heard tonight. Lord, bless her. Bless Aaliyah. Strengthen her. We rejoice with her and her family. We're thankful for the work in our young people and in all of thy saints. May thy name be praised. May we glorify thee in all of our life. Thankful for all that thou hast done, believing thy faithful promise. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.